no matter what I kept doing, she kept coming out very caustic, very uh, honestly aggressive, like very a lot of what we call the stereotype. She lashes out at people when she's upset. And I had to have a moment like, oh my god, am I feeding the stereotype? And I like only able cable to write like an angry black woman. Like I was really worried about it. Hi, it's Chica from Afrenomenon. Welcome to Behind the Cover, a conversation with black authors about the incredible worlds they create and their amazing journeys to get into your bookshelves. Stay tuned. So a few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Roseanne A. Brown, author of A Song of Rates and Ruin. Now, a few things to know about Roseanne. She grew up in Kumasi, Ghana, and then she moved to the United States, in Maryland, and then she fell in love with writing. She then went on to study journalism at the University of Maryland because writing was her way of connecting through her different cultures her different lives in Ghana and the United States. And now, she's a New York Times bestseller. So if you haven't read A Song of Rates and Ruin, she describes it as what happens when Jasmine and Aladdin fall in love, but then they have to kill each other. So think lots of magic, steamy romance, and even court drama. And if you've read the book, well, stay tuned for our conversations around mental illness, the angry black woman trope, and the soft boy aesthetic. I know we have a lot to unpack. Here is Roseanne A. Brown. Thank you so much for having me, Chica. Um, so, rates, a song of rates and ruin. It's so I guess the first moment where like the book really came together. I'd actually been trying to write a book for like years before this. I started in 2016, and like every time I was starting, I was just like giving up like a fourth of the way through. I was just like, I can't. Boring. I don't like this. If I'm bored, readers are gonna be bored. Blah. So, Rates is actually the first book, not like just my first published book, it's the first book I've written ever. And so, like, I had mostly done short stories before that. But, and so, the moment that idea came, so a big theme in Rates is sort of mental health, because sort of mental illness in the black community and the stigma against it is something that's really important to me. And so, I remember the distinct moment I first got the idea, I was actually walking back from a therapist appointment. I was thinking about everything we talked about, everything we'd gone through. And I remember thinking to myself, hmm. If a ghost tried to possess me right now, they'd be like, ooh, you have a lot going on in there. I don't like, like, you can have this back. Like, I don't like that. <laughs> like, it sounds very funny now, but I was like, hang on. I don't think I've ever actually read a book where, like, mental illness, it's not, like, demonized or it's not, like, a metaphor. Like, oh, the character, whenever they have panic attacks, shoot blood me or something. But, like, a character with actual just, like, dealing with anxiety, depression, like, different mental illnesses. And also a fantasy character living in a fantasy world dealing with like fantasy people problems. And that became the inspiration for Malik. Malik is a character who has a very severe panic disorder. And I really want to see how a character like this would navigate through a fantasy world. Like, and I want to show a character like that still being the hero. And so Malik actually became the catalyst for the whole story. I'm like, well, where is this kid? What's he doing? What, where is this world? How is he getting in contact with Supernatural? And from there, the idea just sort of ballooned. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's that's incredible. And I, I have more questions about Malik down the line too. And you know, here's another here's a tweet where like I came across like I think a month ago. So you said twenty years ago I couldn't speak English. Ten years ago I was so anxious I saw no point waking up every day. Four years ago I got an idea for a book about black kids who spoke to spirits and the spirits who spoke back. Now that book is out. And what a life that just reading that just gave me so much chills and just goosebumps. And I want to know what was going through your mind when you sent out this tweet and 
what were the impacts you were looking for to looking to have with this book? So with this tweet, that tweet was actually from the tweet the day the book came out because I was like, obviously when your book comes out, you have to kind of play like your tweet out, like my book says, go buy it here, blah, 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 blah. And I was just kind of like, and that honestly, that day was just wild. Like it was good wild, but it was just very busy, very crazy. But I just remember like at the start of the day, I'm like, and I didn't actually have anything prepared. Like if I was smart, I would have prepared something ahead of time, like scheduled it to go out. But so it's like morning of the day of, and I know I have so much stuff I got to do. I'm like, I got to put out this first tweet so people know the book is out. And I was just kind of thinking, I'm like, for a lot of people, this might be the very first time they hear about the book. It might be the only time. Some people only check out what books are coming out that are new. I'm like, how do I like sum up everything I feel about this book? And I was like, do I just say what the book's about? Like, the 11 gentlemen, blah, blah, which is still true. But I'm like, no, I was just like, I think in this moment, at least, like, there will be future opportunities for me to talk about the books about this, the books about this. But I'm like, for this tweet on this day, I just want to talk about what it means to me. And so I was just really thinking about how far I'd come and like, how, like, like you mentioned, I'm an immigrant. Um, English isn't my first language. And how I was struggling so much when I moved to America, they were ready to, like, hold me back because, like, I just was not understanding what's going on. And thinking about how far I had come since then, I was just like, I think this is what I want to talk about. And I only have, like, a tweet, like, to say it. So I just had to come up with a very quick way to say everything I wanted to say. And so it was just kind of breaking down the timeline from, like, then to now. That's kind of where the tweet came from. And the impact the book I wanted to have, I feel like if there's sort of two, if there's two things I really wanted to get across to readers, which was number one, um, this idea that like sort of the box which we put that what a black story has to look like, it's so big, it's so bad. Um, and it's like, if we keep sort of putting black characters, black writers, black readers in this box, like you get books about, you get books about trauma, you get books about slavery, you get books about police brutality, that is so limiting. And that's also sort of the antithesis of us in the diaspora, how we tell our own stories and how we spread our world. Like how I'll, I'll often talk about sort of the fantastical nature of oral storytelling in Ghana and how that was such a big influence on the book. Like fantasy is so engraved in our cultures, like plural. That's another thing. Africa is not just one culture, but our culture is plural. That like this idea that like you, this is your box, you have to stay inside it. Like that just goes against everything I understand about what it means to be a black person. So, and I wanted to write this book to kind of show that and to show something that's slightly different, even though it does touch on things of oppression, state violence, like xenophobia, like tribalism, but it's not necessarily a book about all that, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing I think was really, and this was more for the young readers in particular, especially young black readers, the idea that like, there is healing after trauma and the idea that like you're what you've been through is valid and like what you're experiencing is real especially because the message in a lot of black communities is that like oh it's all in your head like get over it like oh it's not real just blah 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 blah. and it's like of course it's in your head it's mental illness like where else is it gonna be but <laughs> this idea just because like it's in your head does not mean it's not real and so really writing characters who are on the page karina struggles with like serious like just PTSD and just regret from like being survivor's guilt. Malik deals with severe like panic attacks and he's like a victim of like physical abuse from his family and like seeing them really struggle with it on the page. It was really important to me that like I didn't just, you have magic powers now, you're cured because that's not how anything works. Like they have magic powers now, but they still got to work through all that emotional stuff. And so I wanted that for especially young readers, especially black readers to see that and be like, it's okay, what happens to you isn't your fault. And this idea that, like, there is healing after that. 
but I think those were the big two things I was going for. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Like even just listening to you tell the story, it's just, it's so impactful to me personally, because I always think about where I was, you know, as a young black kid, like, you know, in school, I, you know, I grew up in Nigeria, I moved here and I really needed the story, like with all the things I went through and just like trying to understand everything about my situation. And so I'm just here to say thank you for making sure the story exists for other kids. I always think about, okay, you know, when I have kids or if when my little, my little, little siblings, like what books are they going to read or my little niece and, you know, everybody else in my family, what books are going to read and like, I'm so happy books like this exist and there are authors like you who care so much, like make sure that they're told the way you want them told and also that they're out there because I think for a long time we weren't heard and we weren't spoken to and now it's like there's this whole movement that I feel that is happening right now that I want to like stay. I want it to keep moving. I need I need these stories to exist because just seeing how much it affects me just as a, an adult, I wonder how much it is going to happen on just kids, especially what they go through. So thank you so much. And you sort of touched on this um, in your response to tweet where you said, you know, you loved, you loved, um, you loved writing, you love fantasy, but fantasy didn't love you back. That was a quote I came across. And you said, um, when you wrote your story, you drew from, you know, you drew from your Ghanaian like folklore and what stories you heard growing up and such. And I wanted to know, you know, why was this an important source for your um, inspiration source for your stories? And were there any specific elements that drew from your heritage that are present in the book? So for me, like, the thing is, some pe people are all like, oh, did you, like, start with, like, a Western world and then decide to make it? And I'm like, actually, like, no, at no point did it actually ever occur to me to, like, not set it in this world inspired by, like, West Africa, West North. It's specifically sort of the trans-Saharan trade route, so that sort of corner of Africa. And I think it's... It's weird because it wasn't a conscious decision, right? and people think it was a conscious decision, but I'm just like, I got these characters, and it never occurred to me not to do that. And maybe that's just because that's what I was so familiar with, but you know, I also started the book, sort of, uh, the We Need Diverse Books movement had only been a couple years old, right? And there was this really big push by people writing about their cultures, writing about the world, like bringing what they had to offer to the table. And I think I was really inspired by that movement, and like one book, An Ember in the Ashes, Saba Tahir, love that book, and like, just seeing the way she incorporated her culture into the world. And I saw that, I'm like, I want to do that. I, like, I want to do this. And so I took um, a bunch of inspiration from a bunch of different cultures, especially the sort of uh, Mali, Ghana, Songhe empires, um, 11th, 12th century, and parts of Moroccan culture and all this. But sort of one big way Ghana specifically influenced the book was in the magic system. So in Ghana, um, among the Akan people, we have the day name system, where the day of the week on which you're born, it decides like one of your names and it has great importance and like it can say a lot about who you're going to be as a person. So I sort of took that idea, the idea that the day of the week itself has power and kind of transferred this to the book. And so within the book, the day of the week on which you're born decides what kind of magic you can do. And so, um, and I made like a whole system about it and I made like a whole, okay, well, if the world has this thing where like they separate themselves to like seven kinds of groups, like how you, like, build around that. How do you kind of, like, deal with that? How about people who don't like who their god is? How about people who do like it? Like, and I even made a bunch of horoscopes and stuff, and I, that was really fun to do. It's on my publisher's website, Epic Read, by horoscopes for the book. Um, just kind of this idea of, like, building out of something I understood so intimately, like, the day name system, but kind of putting my own spin on it and, like, getting to honor it without doing the day name system exactly, but kind of, like, making it my own. So that was sort of the really big element that's, like, all throughout the book. 
What was your journey like in just becoming a writer? And why do you write about what you write about? Okay, so the journey. So I I think the exact moment I really, because while I've loved writing since I was young, like the exact moment when it really started was we had been in America maybe just a couple of years and my English was just trash, god-awful, could not speak to anyone. The teachers were like calling my parents like, she might have to be held back because she is not, like she just does not get it. And my parents, like they knew I was not dumb. Like they knew like at home I'm talking to them in treat fine. Like we're having fine conversations, I'm keeping up. But at school I'm just saying they're like, I do not know what this lady's saying. Oh my God. Um, and so the moment where things really started turning around is I forever remember I was in like DJs. I was in like second grade. And they really had this like stuffed dog I really wanted on like that little table full of all the cheap toys. And I was like, mom, 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 I want the dog. I want the dog. I want the dog. I want the dog. I was being really annoying. And she's like, okay, if you can go over to the table where they have the book, you can pick one book and read it all the way through in English and tell me what's about. Next time we come to BJ's, I will get you the dog. And I was just like, oh, fine, mom, God, I just really want that dog. <laughs> so I like stomp over to the table, like, like I gotta read a book. And the book that I ended up picking was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And so I do have to add now that like, uh, like a lot of people have a very complicated relationship with Harry Potter now because of the author and the many things she chooses to say. But this is not about her. This is about the book itself. And like, just the idea, like I started reading that and I was just hooked. I was like, whoa. Like, just, it just blew my brain. I'm like, whoa, you can, like, put words on a page and the people feel real and the world feels real. And, like, these people feel like you're friends. Like, oh, my. Like, I'm, like, seven, so my mind is just blown. Like, what? I didn't even actually get the dog, I realized. Like, I never actually got that dog, so I need to find out about that. But, like, from then on, I was just hooked. Like, I was having my mom take me to the library. I was reading all the time. Like, um, I was just, like, I, I, I want to make something that makes someone feel the way I feel right now, like, reading this book. And so... Especially because I'm very, I'm actually a pretty quiet person, pretty shy person. And so I actually had a lot of hard time talking to like my peers, talking to other kids. And so um, definitely like the place where I felt like I communicated the best was always on paper, was always writing. My teachers, after I like, I actually really got better at English and got better at writing. I was like, really, like she never talked to class, but she, her essays, her stories, her reports, they are amazing. Like, and so I think that just sort of became the most natural way for me to communicate with the rest of the world. And it's part of why I studied journalism in school. I didn't actually get a creative writing degree because I was like, that was another form of storytelling. And I really do think, even though I ended up have not ended up not pursuing journalism like past college, it definitely sort of helped shape the way I write at this idea of like telling very human stories that people care about. And so I think that's where it came from. Like this was the best way of like a very shy, like foreign kid in like suburban America surrounded by like just rural all as far as you can see farmland like this was how I sort of got my voice out into the world going back to you know the point where you got the idea for the story when you said you know you're walking back from your therapy session um you said you got a you know you started out with Malik right you centered the story around Malik he dealt he has you know supernatural powers but also has this mental health issues and you said you wanted to, and so, you know, because of this book, like, no doubt this has opened up at least a conversation in the, from what I've seen, like, you know, conversation about mental health in the black community. And I wanted to know, why did you take the fantasy route in like telling the story, especially around mental health? I think for me, well, number one, I just love fantasy. First of all, like, I really, really love fantasy. Um, uh, I like, I also like contemporary a lot and I love reading contemporary. I haven't written a contemporary yet, so knock on wood, I might still, but I just, I love fantasy. And I think what I love so much about fantasy is it gives such a great avenue to tell 
so many stories that reflect our world, but you get to step away from it a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. it's not in the sense that, like, you're not putting 100% on the page, like, an exact recount of how we experience racism or how we experience sexism or how we experience XYZ. But you get to step back a little bit, but still the meaning is there. And I think when I was, especially with some of the more heavy topics in the book, I was like, I actually kind of needed that step back, that little sort of one degree of separation to be able to really delve into the emotional sort of like consequences and ramifications and sort of the deep effects of it because it would have felt almost a little too raw to put that in a book in our world. Not that there are authors who can't do that, like there are authors who do that amazingly, but that just wasn't quite where I was when I was writing it. Um, and, and it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier, like the idea that like I've seen fantasies like tackle sexism really beautifully or see the topical oppression all the time. I'm like, how does mental health affect the way you move to a fantasy world? I'm like, what if you take someone like Harry Potter or like the Game of Thrones people who all, all have lots of different issues, but like you actually put that on the page, like this is like, because fantasy characters, they go through some traumatic shit. Like these are characters like, it's very normal fantasy where your parents are murdered in front of you. Someone sets your house on fire. Evil wizards torture you to find the magic key or whatever. And like, a character just sort of bounce back like, okay, let's go back to fighting evil. And I'm like, nah, real human beings do not bounce back from like their entire village being set on fire like this. So I wanted to write like a fantasy world where very fantasy things happen, but the consequences are very real human emotion consequences. Like, a lot of the toll of Malik being the only magic person in his village. Like, most villagers aren't going to like that. And so, the, like, sort of his experience with that and, like, sort of the social isolation and being the town pariah and, like, being kind of hated and distrusted by everyone. I was like, that's going to take a toll on you. Like, you don't just chew up, like, well, but I still got magic, so it's okay. Like, nah, you do not. That's not great. Um, and so that was what really fascinated me. I, like, you take, like, you take these fantastical powers, these fantastical ideas, and you give them very real consequences. Yeah, that does let you see, like, the real consequences. Because now that you were saying all this, I was thinking about, okay, Disney, like, Disney princesses. (laughs) (laughs) They really bounce back, like, Snow White, like, you were dead. probably dealt with what she went through the most i think rapunzel like rapunzel she was being emotionally abused by her oh mother God. Gaza for like 18 years yeah and like one thing i really like about the tv show that takes place after the movie rapunzel's still dealing with it she still has panic attacks like being in the tower and like mm-hmm. being scared mother Gotha. like even though within the movie themselves they didn't have time to deal with it but like mm-hmm. in the stuff that came after they show like no she did not just bounce back from that and mm-hmm. i'm like i really love that like i love this idea of showing that like even if you put human beings in worlds with magic and dragons and blah 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 like we're still people people still need to heal and like this idea that like Malik in the real world or in the fantasy world like he still needs to sort of heal from what happened to him yeah and like yeah yeah Belle no she bounces back really fast like that <laughs> she's like okay I'm good I'm like I'm just playing <laughs> Oh, okay. I want to talk about Malik specifically. Let me just start off by introducing, um, or from what I understood about Malik. So, you know, Malik is a refugee. His sister gets kidnapped. His younger sister gets kidnapped and he wants to get her back. And to get her back, he has to kill the princess. It was a deal he pretty much made with, uh, he pretty much made without even knowing like what he was. He just wanted to get his sister back. Now he's also complex because he has like, you know, he goes through like this mental illness of like, you know, he has, he spirits or he, and, but you know, he spent his entire life being told it was, you know, like he's, like he needs to like, you know, work, think harder. Like it's not, it's all his imagination. And so, 
And so a lot of people actually, like we had, um, we've had some people like, you know, write reviews for us about this book and or recommend this book to our audience and they call him a soft boy. And I wanted to know, <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity to either to like describe him to our audience and also like kind of like react to like that whole um, aesthetic they've placed on him and, you know, what you think that <laughs> means for this character. I like, honestly, I can... A hundred percent, like, my experience has been so much here, but, like, Malik is definitely the runaway favorite character. Yeah. Although, like, people love Krita, too, but, like, people are protective of Malik. Like, they're very protective of him. And I'm, like, that fascinates me because often, like, you know how in Avatar there's obviously, like, the big triangle, Aang, Zuko, Katara? Yeah. And, like, between them, like, Zuko, the bad boy, he's definitely the favorite. Like, people don't like Aang. Oh, so really I'm worried. still mad. <laughs> Katara should have ended up with like Zuko. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and I definitely get it. Zuko does have the better story. But like, just the idea that like, I've been a fandom for a while, I kind of have a kind of solid idea kind of what characters people respond to and why. So I really thought people might not like, like, they might find him annoying, they might find him too indecisive, they might find him too, like, nervous. But people are like, he's doing his best. Like, I think, I think what gets people so protective of the league is like, I really never sugarcoat, like, kind of how hard he's struggling. Like, even knowing that, like, his sister's life's on the line. Like, there is no backup here. No one else is going to come save her. Like, it all comes down to him. And, like, in maybe a different fantasy book, the character would rise up. Like, yes, it's all up to me. I got to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And it goes back to our conversation on real consequences. Malik kind of cracks under pressure pretty easily. Like, he's really doing his best. But he's also, like, an emotionally traumatized 17-year-old boy. His best is not necessarily, like, yeah, let's go save the world. His best is, like, can I wake up tomorrow and not lose my mind? Um, and I think so many people, and so many people have written that like, they're like, I thought like, I feel like so seen by this because like, I was that kid that was just like, I see all my friends like going out doing the amazing thing. Like they're doing cool jobs or internships or doing all this cool stuff. And for me, like it was a success if I got out of bed that morning. Like, cause that's the real like kind of ugly truth about it. We kind of like to romanticize these things. Like, one thing I hate so much is like the, oh, the depressed artist, like, oh, Van Gogh, he was so tortured, but that's why his art was so good. Like, nah, I can say from experience, like, my art got better when I was like in a better headspace. But like, just this idea that like, oh, Malik is so sensitive and anxious, but that's part of why XYZ, it's like, nah, it's, it's, it's pretty miserable experience. Like, there are multiple chapters where like, there's a very clear thing he should be doing and he physically cannot do it because his head won't let him. And like, kind of that for people, I want people who have experienced that to really see reflected in that and people who haven't to understand that like mental illness, like to the outside, it looks like, well, why don't you just do X, Y, Z? This will fix your situation. Why don't you just do X, Y, Z? But like when it's in your head, when it's happening to you, it doesn't matter if X, Y, Z is just simple as like going and taking a shower. It feels like climbing Mount Everest. Like you, you cannot do it. Um, and so I think that's part of what people feel so seen there. Like, even if people have not been diagnosed with like a sort of a clinical level mental illness, we think everyone has gone through times of emotional turmoil where even the smallest task seems like impossible. So the idea that like a huge task, like being asked to kill another person on top of like being in that headspace, it's not surprisingly really, it's just like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Especially as being a male character and especially why it's sort of like the um, stereotype of like the YA black, not, not the YA black boy, I'm like, we're still the YA black boy, we need more of them. Like the YA bad boy. Um, like, you know, like you're Edward Cullen, I'm so cool, I'm so like suave, blah, 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 like Gail, Peta, Hunger Games, all those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, Malik is not like that. Malik is very much the opposite of that. 
he's a fine, he's very kind, he's very gentle, he's very nurturing. He, his biggest strength is his ability to sort of connect to people yeah. and sort of like really sort of inspire them and all this. And I wanted to write a male character like that because I feel like black boys, again, they're being told like, oh, you're aggressive, you're angry, you are like only good for strength, you're only good for blah, blah, blah. I wanted to show like a lot of these traits that we consider feminine, that these are actually how the league is moves through the world and how he actually finds success by leaning into the sides of them that are a lot more what a lot of black boys are told they cannot be yes. and so i think that is part of why malik has just so much like people really endear to him like for those sort of two reasons like this i'd let, like to sort of the frank depiction of what he goes through and how he's still able to sort of rise above it to be a hero i can't say why without spoilers but like he towards the end he does find a better way to sort of like handled the demons in his head but also in the real world mm-hmm. and like this idea of a black boy who sort of like goes against what we're told a black boy should act like as a follow-up to that um serene who's like um her instagram is at devi underscore reads and she's the one who was asking about malik she said was malik inspired by someone specific and she's and she was like he's she's the one who calls him a soft boy she's like i love this book because you know malik is a soft boy and she loves and she she wrote the recommendation for us for this book and then um i wanted to know like you know was malik actually inspired by someone maybe um someone specific or someone in your life actually not like if anyone probably malik is most like me probably like just sort of like the emotional, like, like, just the, like, always being in your head, so much is happening in here, but, like, nothing's coming out, and, like, just the sort of the constant worry, like, oh, my God, that strives on this, strives on this, strives, blah, 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 blah. So, in terms of, like, on that level, he's most similar to me, but, like, in terms of, like, a person in my life who sort of embodies all that, mm-hmm. not really, like, I definitely, sort of, parts of other black boys I've known and who I've cared about, I sort of put that into him, but he very much sort of became his own thing, mm-hmm. especially because a lot of ways he's sort of the emotional heart of the story and so he sort of just kind of sprung up from that so no there's no one person who i'd say that is where malik came from okay and um and then now shifting to a different character karina um (laughs) so you describe her as passionate and fierce but she's also very hurt and angry as a matter of fact you know she lashes out and but then you say she's also never the angry black girl and I wanted to know why was it important to address this like angry black girl uh, stereotype and just trope and you know what was your process in like handling it but in a very in a way that it wouldn't be perceived as you know the stereotype okay so obviously um, the angry black woman stereotype is something I know very well honestly like here I am I'm describing like I'm the quietest kid I do not like sometimes I get excited I get a little loud like I'm just people terrify me like all this and so um it kind of goes back again to like how i was perceived as a child like teacher my um parents were getting reports from like teacher like oh rosie she's too aggressive she's too loud she's like fighting the other kids and they're like this does not sound like our child but just i understood a very and like i was like devastated like i'm just like what am i doing wrong and it's, it feeds into anxiety like oh my god these people think i'm like xyz xyz i'm like i'm literally sitting there doing nothing and you're still getting blamed for stuff you didn't do and I realized at a very young age, like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. Like, I could literally not say a single word all year, and there's still going to be people out there who's like, Rosie, she's being too aggressive, she's being too blah, 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 blah. And I understood, oh, so the angry black woman has actually nothing to do with us as black people. It's everything to do about how a black woman is perceived. Me speaking up and just saying, hey, this kid is being kind of rude to me. Because she's like, oh, why, she attacked Jeffrey, blah, blah. And I was like, that's something that has bothered me my whole life, still bothers me. So... 
with that backstory, so when it came time to actually really start to craft the story, I had the lead. But I realized pretty quickly, because it was just such a big story with a big world and so many things were happening, Malik alone wouldn't be enough as like our narrator, mm. because I, there's just so much happening that he just is not aware of. And like there's just things the reader needed to know that there was no way he could logically know. So I was like, okay, then I need at least one more narrator who can kind of give us the other side of the story that Malik's missing, and who can help us figure out, like, sort of help the reader piece things together a little more quickly. And so I was really thinking, I'm like, who's another character who make a good counterpoint for Malik? And I was like, well, why not Karina herself? Like, she is the person he's trying to kill. Like, how does she feel about all this? She is not happy with <laughs> And so when I started it, because I was actually thinking of the angry back of the stereotype, I actually originally, I really wanted Karina to be like a Disney princess. Like, I really wanted her to be like soft and sweet because I wanted to write a black girl who was like very like loving and like the like the Cinderella, like, oh, all the animals fly and fly at her. <laughs> and of course, those of you who have read the book are probably like, Karina? Because like, that is not how she ends up. Like, no matter what I kept doing, she kept coming out very caustic, very uh, honestly aggressive, like very a lot of what we call the stereotype. She lashes out at people when she's upset. And I had to have a moment like, oh my god, am I feeding the stereotype? And I like only able capable to write like an angry black woman. Like I was really worried about it. But I was like, hang on here, hang on. There's clearly if I keep writing this like this, even though I'm trying to like write that's not what I'm trying to do, there's clearly a reason I keep coming back here. So I really sat down, like, why does this character keep coming out this way? And I was looking at her backstory, I was looking where she's been through. Like Karina has gone through a lot of trauma in her life. She, her older sister has passed, and like, sort of her whole life, she's sort of been compared to this, like, this perfect idea that people have of her dead sister, and, like, she can't compete with that, because you can't compete with a dead person, because, like, in people's memories, they're always better than they actually were. And so this idea that, like, no matter what she does, she's never going to be good enough for these people has really sort of, like, warped how she sees herself, on top of some other stuff I can't mention because of spoilers. But I'm like... Honestly, I'd be angry in the situation. Like, this idea that, like, I know I'm being treated unfairly and there's nothing I can do about it. Like, that is, I think, something so many black women can understand. Like, just this idea that, like, we have already lost because of rules by somebody else and me, right? And so Karina, even though it's not a world, she's not dealing with racism the way we are, but, like, that feeling, that frustration, like, nothing I does matter because, like, these people have already made up their mind that came out on the page, and I was like, oh, oh, Karina is coming across as angry because she is angry. The stuff that's happened to her are angry. Like, these are upsetting things that are happening to her. Why should she not be angry? Why should she be smiling and be like, it's okay, I don't mind you treating me like crap. Like, no. And so it definitely became a thing there. I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to let Karina be as angry as she wants to be. I'm going to let her be as rude as she wants to be. I'm going to let her, like, lash out and, like, be upset with these people. Because I really wanted to show, like, her anger is honestly justified. And I wanted readers, especially non-black readers, to really see that. And at first they're like, oh, Korea's angry because black girls are angry. They're like, no, hang on. Where is the source of this? What is this coming from? In what ways is, like, she justified in her reaction? Hoping that they might see that and they might start thinking that, like, okay, have I ever been in a situation with someone I labeled as the angry black person? Did I take that second to really think why are they reacting to what, to me, seems like an overreaction? But to them is obviously, like, this giant buildup of like so many small and big injustices so like that's sort of how Karina ended up going from like this super sweet princess to like very very mean honestly but like a very kind of necessary meanness yeah I like that I like that oh, I'm so excited <laughs> and I'm pretty sure a lot of our, our audience is going to be very excited to like dive in completely because that all of this is just 
these are things that I want to see in these books. Like I want someone to address this, um, especially this angry woman, black woman um, stereotype, but in a very smart and like, you know, like, yeah, we do get angry, but it's not like we're just angry. Like there are reasons and there are sources for it. So I like that you actually addressed that in this book. And then um, I was going to, the next question I had was about, you know, I think I came across an interview where you said that, you know, Black kids, especially, um, you deserve like epics and like, you know, this, um, that, you know, like Star Wars, Harry Potter level, like narratives that centered them and their experiences. And you even go, go further to say that you want black kids from all corners of the diaspora to feel welcomed and to know their existence matters and holds literary merit. And I wanted to, you know, to dive deeper into like, you know, what would that look like? We are definitely seeing a rise in like black authors, which I, I love that. Love that a hundred percent. But we are seeing less of a rise on sort of the back end of all the things that come out putting media. I'm going to talk about books specifically just because that's what I know. Like while we've seen a rise in like black authors, there has not been a similar rise in black editors or in black cover designers or in black sales teams, marketing like or and this true holds true for all by POC, but talking black people specifically. So we have these black authors with these amazing books, but then you have teams that might not necessarily know exactly how to position it or how to put it out there because like so much of a book success goes off of like the team behind it and it's the team behind it because like I can write the best book in the world who knows but like if the like house doesn't know how to position this book like it's gonna like die in a dumpster like no one's gonna pick that up and I've been very grateful in my team um like that they've been really like listen to like my cultural input and really be like oh if on the cover like I want her this, the symbolism behind her, the ornamentation, I want it to be reminiscent of like sort of like West African patterns and like henna and that type of thing, like, and the importance of that. And they really reflect that. Like they got a black cover artist for the, like a black woman shot the cover. And obviously we have black models for the cover. Like this idea that like those women's those background, the narrators for the book, we had black narrators and it seems so obvious. Like, oh, of course, like all these people should be black. But like in publishing, that was not necessarily true. Only a couple of years ago, there was a huge big blow up of them putting white models on covers with black main characters because they thought, oh, black girl was no one's read it. And so, like, and I wish that my experience was not very surprising that to see the house really be like, yeah, no, we want black people working on this. We want them to bring their perspective into this. We want that. But, like, I want to see that, but on a wider scale. Like, it should not be surprising to me. Like, oh, man, we got this. Like, no, this should be expected. Like, of course you're going to find a black narrator. Of course you're going to find a black cover artist. And then more on the sort of... Um, the house's side like really supporting like black like talent because there's been a lot of burnout among by poc and publishing and especially like a lot of like among the entry levels they're very diverse like sort of assistant editors or assistant designers all that but then as you get to the upper rungs it comes less and less diverse because they burn out so much at the lower levels because they don't have the support they need or they don't have like the experience they need to keep raising higher. And so it's easier for them for their own like sake of their own health and their own safety to just leave publishing like to try and stick it out and get to the higher levels where they get to make these higher level decisions. So for us, I think, to really see this world where black creators and black stories are being celebrated and elevated in the way we want them to, we're gonna have to see more on the back end being done to support honestly like black publishing workers and black employees like more not just mentorship but also like more living salaries like a lot of the current salaries for these entry-level positions because publishing at least till the pandemic was mostly based in new york these were not like rates that people in new york could live off of 
there was a reason lots of people in publishing are like married, they have a, a spouse who's bringing in another income so that they don't have to just live off like that that income so they can do publishing and not worry that, oh, what am I am I gonna be able to pay rent? But like if you're a young twenty something black grad, like first person in your family to go to college, no generational wealth, like you can't live off a publishing salary, like an entry level. So of course this person could have like the mind that's gonna they have the ability to pick the next book that's gonna like change the world, but like they're not focused on that because they're trying to pay their rent, which is like understandable. And so what we need there is more support on that end and more like sort of institutions and more to be done to support these people, give them what they need to do their jobs. Cause when they, when like black editors, black cover designers, black people are supported, they put out bomb ass books. They put out amazing ass books. And like, so it's, this is not a lack of ability. It's not a lack of talent. It's a lack of resources and support. So the short answer to all that is we need more resources and support for black people behind the scenes. Like the people who know what, who aren't on the cover of the book, their name's not written there, but like they are integral to that book existing. That's how we're going to see more books like rates out there in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as a follow up to that, I actually had this question about, you know, you said that you were inspired to write your story after reading an ember in the ashes by about how do you see or describe this state of non-Western fantasy? And do you think this is actually a shift or are you seeing this just as a trend? People who call sort of diversity a trend, I'm just like, y'all realize like I was black before y'all started caring about black folks and I will still be black after you stop caring. Like just because my thinking is just because to someone else they see as a trend does not mean this is not still our lived experience. Like, of course, definitely publishing some things go in and out of fashion. Like we all remember the big dystopia craze when suddenly everyone wanted Hunger Games or like the vampire craze, we all know that. Like I, I'm not gonna lie and say certain things, like certain things do happen, certain trends do happen. But I very much believe that like diversity, and not just diversity, like inclusive narratives, like supporting authors from marginalized backgrounds is not a trend because number one, that's what we should have been doing from the start. And number two, it's just like, this is like, this is us as people. Like, this is not vampires. This is not dystopia. This is not like just some, like, oh, like some genre. But like, this is our experience. This is who we are. Like, and so I definitely think this is not going away. This idea that like, we're going to keep centering marginalized voices and we're going to keep fighting against folks that don't do that. Because like, we are here and especially because like, because of um, organizations like We Need Diverse Books and POC and Pub have been, out here doing the work on the other side of being like, we want our demands heard. We want to be heard. Latinx and publishing, like so many groups have been organizing and like collective action to make it known that like, we are not settling for like racist depictions of people anymore, especially in, for books for young readers, which are so formative and do so much to help how they see the world. Like we are not selling for harmful depictions of black people with monkeys or like happy slaves dancing around George Washington's house. No, no. And so I don't, like, I think some people might call it a trend, but, like, those people, honestly, were probably never going to get on board anyway. Like, the thing is, this is not, like, even if the kinds of books might shift, like, we might shift away from fantasy for a little bit, shift more towards rom-coms or thrillers or whatever's happening. So even if the kinds of books shift, I think the core of centering marginalized voices is not going to change. And honestly, we could still be doing more of it. Snaps to all of that. And... Even like, even, and then even getting even deeper into like, so no doubt, like there is a limited representation of black stories, especially ones featuring darker skinned women. I was so happy when I picked up this book and I was like, yes, dark skinned women on, on the front cover. But um, 
especially in black, especially in um, fantasy stories. And I want to know if we were to imagine or hack a solution for making sure that like we keep seeing more of like, what would that even look like? In like making sure these are still on the forefront because i talked to um renny k amayo uh, but she wrote daughters of henry and she was saying that when she did her was trying to do her cover her book cover which is stunning she that you know a lot of people kept on saying that this is not going to sell because it features like you know black people on top and then you know you did the same thing and even um was it tomi ademi had a black per a black woman on top of cover too and so what would like how do you sort of like kind of like dismantle this like whole perception that still exists that they're that they won't sell like I'm, I'm still I get annoyed when I hear that honestly at this point anybody who says a book with black person is not gonna sell especially after like the hate you give has become one of like the best selling books of all time at this point they're just like they don't know what they're talking about like they just, just don't know what they're talking about and I just don't listen to people like that like as my thinking was look if we put, like, Karina and we make her, and that was one of my things I was telling them when we were deciding the cover, I was like, Karina has to be dark. Like, it's not just enough she's black. Like, if you come through here with Zendaya, cover, first <laughs> I'll be like, Zendaya, I love you, but also, like, I need a dark-skinned black girl. Like, and that's something that they they honored, which I'm very, which, again, goes back to having people in power who understand the importance of these kind of things. I was like, this book is not the same book if you, like, present it as Karina being, like, light-skinned. But these people who don't understand this, number one, on a pure marketing, like, sort of business level, they don't understand how much black readers want to support books about people like them. Like, they see a book, like, about a, explicitly about a black person, they see more. Like, black readers, they have, like, they are ready to support people. They are ready to throw dollars. They are ready. So, like, just marketing perspective is stupid. And then just on the level of, like, representation, all this stupid, like, I feel like part of it is sort of, like, a self-fulfilling prophecy because the publishers say, oh, this kind of book's not going to sell, so we're not going to like market it, we're not going to promote it, we're not going to do this. And then because they don't promote it, nobody buys it. And because nobody buys it, next time they have a chance to buy a book like that, they're like, oh, but we tried last time and nobody bought it, so we're not going to buy it. And Or they do buy it, but they put no promotion that doesn't promote like blah, 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 blah. And so, and I think that's something a lot of people don't understand. Like the publisher, they have so much power, they have so much more reach. Like, even if I yell about my book every single day, like, blah, 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 and, like, I can get maybe 10 people to buy it in one day, and that's 10 people, and let's say I do that for 30 days straight, that's still, what, 300 copies sold, right? And meanwhile, a publisher, they can reach, and they can get 300 copies sold in a single day, or even more. Like, these, like, the scale of which we're working at is just so different, and so it goes back to those people kind of deciding like these are the stories that we're going to promote we're going to celebrate we're going to put in front of people because the audience is there so it's all about getting the books to them and so to people who say oh no it's not gonna sell anymore it's just like you don't understand like you don't you must not like money <laughs> i guess you don't like money good so far awesome don't forget to hit that follow and subscribe to our newsletter remember you can always find us on all social media platforms Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Did you do it? Awesome. Now let's jump right in. How do you think we can get these books to the people that really, really want them and need them? I think, well, especially for young readers, like you mentioned, like it goes back to the gatekeepers again, which are tend to be the parents, the teachers, librarians, like within children's publishing, those are kind of the big three because like like you said, kids don't have money themselves. They're not buying the books themselves. And so, and this is another way publishers have so much more resources. Like a publisher could like contact a school, like 
yo, like, interested in this book. If I call a school, like, yo, interested in this book, they will hang out before call police. But, like, <laughs> like, it's getting them and it's getting the teachers and, like, doing that's why the librarian resources and, like, the conferences and all those are so important, like, and which is why it's so sad that those conferences all had to cancel because of COVID because those are a big way of how librarians sort of find out what books are coming out and, like, what books, like, pass their um, students because they know their students the best. They know what their specific area needs, what their students need, what kind of books they're looking for. And so it becomes just very important, like, getting these books to them and getting the gatekeepers to understand that, like, even if you are teaching at a predominantly, like, white area, like, it's still important for your students to see books with, like, black and marginalized characters, for them to understand how people who are dissimilar to them live. Like, as a teacher, you're doing them a disservice if you aren't giving them these narratives because you're giving them a skewed version of the world. So you're not actually preparing them for the world, which is, like, your job as a teacher. And so to get books to those readers... Like, and it goes for us who are adults to, like, really keep shouting about them, promoting them, like, putting them out there, getting them on the radars of these people who can then pass them on to the kids. With adult, it's a little bit different because, again, when, as an adult writer, you're, you're marketing directly to your reader. Like, so that's a direct um, connection there. So it's just more word of mouth, just kind of making sure you're shouting about what you love, you're promoting what you love. Leaving reviews is so important because a lot of people, um, especially black authors, we deal with a lot of racist stuff on, like, sites like Goodreads, Amazon. Like, people, the people who do not like these books are vocal. Like, they will read the review. And, like, it's kind of like that, how people always talk about how, like, things like Yelp are very skewed because someone who is unhappy is more likely to leave a review than someone who is happy. So it tends to make a place rating look lower, even though the place itself is probably fine, right? Because, like, if nine people, if ten people dine there and one person had a bad time and the other nine people had a fine time, but only the one person who had a bad time leaves a review, boom, the review says, oh, the rating says no. So another super thing that's important is being vocal online and putting it like on Goodreads. Like if you like, even if all you have to say is like, hey, I like this book, the ending made me happy, that helps because the algorithm doesn't actually care what you say. It just cares about like the rating you give it and the fact you said something. Mm. So really encouraging, especially black readers, to be vocal and show like, we want this, we love this, we want more of this, to like push it on there and push up a lot of the racist mess that we leave, see left on these pages. That's one of the easy ways people can support um, and, oh, another thing is requesting books from that their library buy it. Like, even if they already have a copy, but tell your library, hey, I want you to buy this book. That helps so much because it helps the reach of the book, um, especially even if you can't afford to buy the book. It lets the librarians know, oh, people are demanding this. This is, like, something we should keep an eye on. Like, there's just so many ways that people have um, power to, like, support their authors and support, like, the kind of stories they want to see without spending any money because, obviously, money is tight for everyone right now. If you had three words to describe your book, like what would the words you use to describe it? Okay, three words to describe race. I'd probably say it's sort of, um, it's twisty, definitely twisty, lots of plot twists. I'd say it's, um, I'd definitely say it's very, um, I want to say big hearted. I don't know, I like, that might be strange, but I, I feel like I really put a lot of like empathy and understanding in the book and like even the villain characters, I really want to, people to really think like what makes someone act like this like no one wakes up this morning and decides i'm gonna go start killing people like like even if they don't like these characters at least i wanted them to understand where every character was coming from and then the third one um dark i think people tend to be surprised by kind of how dark the book is because like it's like a like it's a princess book like she's like on the cover she's all cute like all this stuff mm. and then the inside they're like ooh, ooh. 
that, that is murder. I'm like, yeah, I want people, like, we have a content warning on the front of the book because I'm like, no, we're going to get deep into some of this stuff. Like, I just want you to know, like, don't let the, like, cute package fool you. Like, this book can get pretty heavy. But I think, so those are big things, like, twisty, big heart, and dark. And what are your hopes for the future of, like, this book as well as your other works? Like, well, for this book, I, um, I got to announce like about a month ago, we actually sold the TV rights to ABC Studio, which is super exciting, super, super mega dream. Um, things are still very, very early. Like we're still talking, like kind of figuring out like sort of next steps and team and all that stuff. But my biggest hope for race series specifically is sort of we get to move forward on that. Because again, every, nothing is ever for certain. And obviously Corona has messed up a lot of people's plans in a lot of ways. So nothing is guaranteed, but like my dream would be to like see this, like move forward and all the pieces fall into place and like to see this become a show. I just, I can't even like imagine. So that is what I'm hoping for for Wraith. Um, as for Wraith 2, I hope I get to finish it because it's actually due on Friday. Like as soon as we're actually done talking, I'm just going to go back to work. But um, I guess what I want for Wraith 2 is I want this book to sort of stand up to, I feel like the book, first book left big expectations in reader which is, like, wonderful. It means, like, readers care and, like, that they the story touched them, and I love that so much. But, again, that means for book two, I need to find a way to, like, sort of meet those expectations and maybe twist some of them because, like I said, twisty. But, like, I want, like, the people who believe in the story and believe in these characters, I want them to leave with a satisfying ending, especially because this is a duology, not a trilogy, so it's only two books. So I basically have two books to fit, like, usually in fantasy, people are used to trilogies. They're used to, like, the three books, the Lord of the Rings, the Star Wars, like, you have three books of your favorite characters. So, with Wraith, we only have two. So I need to fit, like, three books worth of, like, feelings into two books. <laughs> That's, like, so there's definitely the feeling, like, like, this is only book two, but it's also the end, at least for these characters at this moment. Um, people have asked me if I'd write in the world again. I can honestly say at this moment there aren't plans for another books in the Wraith world, but that does not mean I'd never do that. Um... And even though I have some other stuff along the works, um, the other are set in the race world. But like, like I said, like especially if fan response is very vocal. It goes back to like showing the publisher people want more books. Like that conversation can definitely be open. Like, what other stories are there to tell in this world? Which I think there's honestly a lot. So I guess that's my big hope. Like that this book stands up to what people want it to be, and like also maybe not necessarily what they want it to be, but what the book needs to be. And that is Roseanne A. Brown, author of A Song of Wraiths and Ruin whose sequel, A Psalm of Storms and Silence, comes out November 2nd, but is available for pre-order everywhere you get your favorite reads. If you want to be in the loop for all good black reads, stay subscribed. For the full transcript, head over to afrenomenon.com. And if you want to get featured, send us an email at hello at afrenomenon.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. We hope to see you next time. Bye now.